0: Welcome to another episode of America's Constitution. I'm Andy Lipka here with Professor Akhil Amar and a special guest. I think our audience can guess who our guest is based on our, our recent uh, discussion of the uh, amicus brief that was filed by uh, Akhil, Vic, and Professor Stephen Calabresi. Yes, it's Professor Stephen Calabresi. So welcome, Steve. Thank you.
1: It's a pleasure to be
2: here. And Steve and I are actually in my Yale Law School office together, and he's um, at home in Princeton, New Jersey.
0: Yeah, right. so we can see who has the better microphone, and I know the answer is me. Okay. <laughs> so let me tell you a little bit about Steve, um, in addition to the fact that uh, that he's on this very important brief. Um, so Steve is the Clayton J. and Henry R. Barber Professor of Law at the Northwestern Pritzker School of Law. Um He's also been a visiting professor of law at Yale Law School for a number of years, including now, I believe. Um, And he's also has been a visiting professor of political theory uh, at Brown in the past. And for a long time now, since 1986, uh, he's been the chairman of the Federalist Society's board of directors. And in fact, he's one of the founders of the Federalist Society. The, uh, The Yale chapter, I believe they were... Uh, Three initial chapters, is that right?
1: Uh, Three initial chapters, Yale, Chicago, and Harvard. And I basically founded the Yale chapter. Two college friends from Yale founded the Chicago chapter. From Yale College. From Yale College. And uh, then uh, Spence Abraham, who we hadn't met until we founded the Federalist Society, started the Harvard chapter.
0: So obviously this will be an important uh, subject of discussion. But uh, there's more, uh, because Professor Calabresi worked um, in the West Wing, not the television show like uh, like Akil, but the actual West Wing of uh, President Oh, the real one. Who
2: cares about that one? In right, right. <laughs> that one, the conservatives sometimes are in control, uh, you know, but, but, but not with, uh, with Jed Bartlett, except, except for the John Goodman episode. Yes,
0: yes, John Goodman. Um, Yeah, but anyway, uh, he worked in the West Wing of President Reagan's uh, White House. He was the uh, special assistant um, to Attorney General Ed Meese, um, an important originalist, by the way, and he clerked for Justice Antonin Scalia on the Supreme Court after having clerked for Judge Robert Bork and Judge Ralph Winter on federal courts of appeals. Um, Professor Calabresi has written over 70 law review articles and essays, and he's co-author on three books. Um, He teaches a wide range of courses, but most of them have something or other to do with constitutional law. Um, I personally heard Professor Calabresi at uh, the Rosencrantz Originalism Conference a couple of years ago, um, where he spoke with Akhil and um, a number of other luminaries, including uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. So anyway, welcome to America's Constitution, Professor Calabresi.
1: Thank you very much. Delighted to be here.
0: And that's the last time I'm going to call you Professor on the uh, on the podcast. <laughs> since okay, we're, we're a friendly podcast. Um, okay. So, you know, I read your your formal bio. Let's let's talk a little bit about your Akeel bio here for a moment.
2: Oh, uh, thank God! I was wondering where I, where I fit into this whole thing. So, uh, uh, thank so, you, Andy. So. Um,
1: I met Akeel his freshman year in Yale College, which was my sophomore year in Yale College. And uh, we met through the Yale Political Union, which is a debating and politics group modeled on the Oxford Union set up by Dean Acheson and other luminaries of the New Deal era. And during the time we were in the political union, there were five political parties A progressive party on the far left, a liberal party, a conservative party, which I changed the name of to the independent party, and then a Tory party and the party of the right. And Akil was chairman of the liberal party, and I was chairman of the independent party. So we've known each other. For very, most, essentially all of our adult lives, we've grown up together.
2: <laughs> and if I could just say a little bit about the Liberal Party, it had a, a very illustrious history. The political union in general did, but previous chairs of the Liberal Party included uh, folks like John Kerry. And Evan Wolfson, much more recently, Evan and I overlapped. Evan Wolfson would later go on to, um, head up the, the Freedom to Marry project. He would be, would later become the, in fact, the Martin, um, Luther King, the Thurgood Marshall of same-sex marriage and, uh, I arrived in 1876 and graduated in, in 80. And so when I come in, Jimmy Carter is winning the presidency. When I leave, Ronald Reagan is winning the presidency. And within the political union, there was sort of a shift uh, re- reflecting broader trends in national politics. The Liberal Party used to be the dominant party of the political union and not so much by the end. I was the first chair of the Liberal Party, the Political Union, I think, in 10 years, who didn't go on in the next semester to be Speaker of the House of the Yale Political Union or President of the Yale Political Union. Um, So Kerry was Chairman of the Liberal Party, and then he went on to these high leadership positions, and Evan Wilson and a whole bunch of others, but I didn't. And I didn't because there was this fellow who, in effect... Beat me fair and square, beat me so soundly. I wanted to be president of the political union. I didn't even run for the thing because I knew how to count votes. And that fellow who I totally underestimated was named Steve, Cal- Steve Calabrese. I wonder what happened to him. Um, <laughs> but I'll, uh, he's, he's chuckling, but here's what happened. I told myself way back when I said, you know, this guy is very impressive. And I didn't see him coming. I underestimated him. I'm never going to do that again. I want to become his friend. I want to become his best friend. I want to learn everything he has to teach me because this guy is really, really good at what he does. And, and I saw that way before he had even uh, co-founded the Federalist Society. So we do go back a long ways.
1: Well, and I saw a huge amount of talent in Akil and great friendliness and warmth also. And we really forged a friendship in college and in law school that has lasted for life. And we overlapped in law school with me a year ahead of Akil as well. And while we were in you know, law school, I was busy founding the Federal Society And Akil would come to our lunch planning meetings, and we gave him the official title of the devil's advocate, (laughs) because he was arguing the liberal position on things, and we were founding a conservative and libertarian think tank organization. First, we thought it would just be a law school chapter, but then it turned out to be a great deal more. But Akil was there very from the first discussions on about it, and he was always probing and asking questions and pushing us to do a better job.
2: And the Federal Society at its best has always been an organization, especially in law schools that brought people of different points of view together to argue and to debate that grew out of, frankly, Steve's vision as an undergraduate of the Yale Political Union—that it, 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 in fact, should be an organization that encourages students to actually debate with each other across the aisle—and and Steve had that vision, I think, more than many other classmates of mine. Is why he deserved to be president of the Political Union. One thing that he did, I think, in in his year is, for example, he brought George McGovern and Bill Buckley. Together on the same day, not different days, but we, we um, it was a speaker society. We'd hear great people speak. But he and and and, and um, other folks want to be more of a debating association. He said, "Let's combine them. Taste great. Less feel filling. You know, two great tastes that taste great together. Sort of, you know, Reese's peanut butter cups. Or something. Let's bring great uh, public figures. But instead of one at a time, let's bring them two at a time and have them sort of, in effect, launch." Um, a debate with the students then jumping in. So I think, Steve, it was um, McGovern against Buckley on, what, the Vietnam War? Something Uh, like that? Something like
1: that, yes, something like that. Uh, I have to say I grew up uh, as a huge admirer of Firing Line and of watching Bill Buckley on Firing Line. And Bill Buckley's most frequent sparring partner on Firing Line was a wonderful Democratic congressman named Allard Lowenstein, who was tragically
2: assassinated. Former chair of the Liberal Party of the Yale Political Union, I believe, in fact. He was in that tradition with John Kerry and Evan Wilson and, and a little old me. And Allard was
1: absolutely brilliant. And at the time, my views were moderately liberal. I became conservative in college and during the Reagan administration. In 1976, I actually voted for Jimmy Carter, but I always really admired Firing Line because Buckley was sm- so smart and the debates were so interesting and um, very much admired him for uh, sparring with Allard Lowenstein. During my term as president of the political union, I held two events which I was particularly proud of. The first was a debate with the South African ambassador to the United States South Africa then being a racist apartheid regime, with Allard Lowenstein and the resolution they were debating was that Yale should disinvest in companies doing business in South Africa. Uh, The event ignited the whole campus. Yale hired 500 off-duty policemen to make sure that there was no violence. The debate was peacefully held, the resolution overwhelmingly carried, and shortly thereafter, Yale did disinvest in companies doing business in South Africa. And then to top that off for free speech and debate, we had a debate between Lowenstein and a representative of the PLO over whether or not Israel had a right to exist. Lowenstein again won the debate. There was again a lot of security and um, it's fair to say that we really sort of uh set the tone on campus. During this time, the Yale Daily News, the editor-in-chief of which was uh Ruth Marcus, who now, of course, is at the Washington Post. Ruth Marcus repeatedly published editorials demanding that we disinvite the South African ambassador and disinvite the representative of the PLO because they stood for such hateful things. My view was bring them here, make them confront a really talented liberal advocate like Allard Lowenstein and try to defend their positions and they will lose. And that is exactly what happened. And it was a triumph for free speech and for debate and for causes that I really cared about. So and now you
2: see, folks, why, you know, I was so wrong to underestimate this guy because he actually had... A really interesting vision of universities, of free speech, of discourse, of the Yale Political Union. And he carried some of those ideas forward into law school. And early on, the Federal Society, before it was a networking organization or anything like that, before it was like a a powerful lawyers. Organization right. was a place for students to and debate with each other and to bring professors of different points of view to actually engage each other and that was Steve's idea at the Federal Society, but it built on Steve's idea at the political Yale Political Union undergraduate and I watched him do all of this stuff from the beginning.
1: Yeah, absolutely. The Federal Society grew out of the Yale Political Union and out of the commitment to debate in the Political Union. And uh, the reason we thought we needed a Federalist chapter at Yale Law School was because once Robert Bork and Ralph Winter were appointed judges, there were precisely no conservatives on the Yale faculty. And it was clear that none were going to be hired anytime soon. So we realized that if we wanted to have a debate or we wanted to hear conservative and libertarian viewpoints, we were going to have to import people from outside and bring them in and have them debate our teachers here at the law school. And that's exactly what we did.
0: You know, it's interesting because, I mean, a lot came out of that discussion. The first thing that came out of the discussion is that Achille has a much much more instrumental view of friendship than you. He said, yes. "I want I want to get to know this guy because he's he's gonna he's gonna help me." And um, and you no, said, "Oh, this guy I is res- so much warmth and he's a no such no a no nice because, guy. I res-
2: because I respect him and you know and I, and I, I yes it's true I look for, I look for people who actually have intelligence because I actually want to become smarter and the way you you actually become smarter is to talk with smart people who are willing to, to talk to you. And, no, I I never have any friend with someone that I don't respect, you know, at a deep level. But, yeah, if you want to actually become a better chess player, you want to play chess with a good chess player. You want to become a better tennis player, you play tennis with a good tennis player. And I wanted to become better and stronger, and I thought, Steve is going to help me to be the best you know, Akeel that I
1: can be. And I think Akeel and I share a passion for excellence, which I would trace back to Donald Kagan's ancient Greek history class that I took as a freshman in Yale College. He talked about how the Greeks really valued arete, excellence, uh, excellence in speaking, excellence in thinking, excellence in friendship, excellence as a parent, all the various forms of excellence. And Akeel embodies those. And so that's cemented our friendship for four decades now, or going on five decades. And and
2: Kagan had a huge influence on me. Um, I took him in my senior year of Yale College. And in fact, many of my ideas, for example, about the Constitution are very much influenced by Kagan, who once sort of said, here's what ancient Greece is all about. It's about democracy, slavery, and war. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And it turns <laughs> out, that's my view of the Constitution, it's about democracy, slavery, and war. And he actually at another point said, well, Greece is all about mountains and oceans, but here's the thing, oceans divide, but they also connect, they're highways. Mountains only divide. And I'm writing this down and say, well, that's very interesting, because I actually, you know, I'm, it's my view difference between armies and navies. And all the rest. He says, oh, Athens is a great naval power, Sparta is a great land power, and there are differences. I'm getting ideas that 30 years later would mature into... A constitutional philosophies, and I'm getting it from Absolutely. a guy who's talking about a place halfway across the planet many centuries ago.
1: One of the things I picked up from Donald Kagan was uh, in one of his lectures, he was talking about how Pericles whipped the Athenians into a frenzy by urging them to live up to the glory of Cleisthenes and their grandparents. And then he paused and said, and let that be a lesson to any of you who go into politics. Uh, if you want to be a success, wrap yourself in the glory of your ancestors. And when we were picking the name Federalist Society for the new organization I founded, I had Kagan's advice in mind. And because the Federalist Party was the party that advocated the Constitution, because the Federalist Papers were the greatest work of political philosophy any group of Americans have ever produced, And because we believed in federalism as a matter of governmental principle we wrapped ourselves in the glory of the founding. And, of course,
0: the Federalist <laughs> Papers wrapped themselves, in turn, in the glory of Rome by calling themselves uh, Publius. Um, <laughs> they most certainly did. And
2: this actually wasn't pre-rehearsed. I'm in the middle, Andy, of rereading a great book about our hero, uh, Abe Lincoln, Lincoln at Gettysburg, and I read this weekend uh, the first 89 pages. It's an amazing book by Gary Wills, who got his degree in classics at Yale, and this is all about Pericles funeral oration as a precursor to Lincoln's Gettysburg address, which is also an, uh, you know, an address commemorating a funeral of sorts. And when you read this, it all actually pulls together because who was Gary Wills? Gary Wills actually gets his first job hired by Bill Buckley to write for the National Review. He writes very interesting and engaging stuff. And Wills is very much influenced by the Greeks and the the, the Romans, of course, but he's connecting it to the American Constitutional Project. In the book, he also talks, and I was also rereading this weekend, a book that he wrote called Inventing America, about Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. And he's talking about the people that Steve and I studied as undergrads at Yale. Edmund Morgan for American History, Don Kagan for Greek history.
1: I did a brief stint as a speechwriter for Dan Quayle when he was vice president because Bill Kristol was chief of staff and he wanted a bunch of intellectuals on Quayle's staff. And I was asked to write a speech for Quayle commemorating law enforcement officers who died in the line of duty on May 15, 1990. And so, uh, to make it as good a speech as possible, I reread Pericles funeral oration to the Athenians, and I reread the Gettysburg address, and I tracked out the moves they made. And then I wrote a speech in words that Quayle could pronounce and say that co- combined those ideas. And it was a great speech. It was very well received, but it was, it's, it was a privilege to be able to draw on. Pericles and Gettysburg Address to do that.
2: And Andy, what it is that we are talking about, the three of us, I know this is about the Constitution in particular, this podcast, but we are singing the song, the, the three of us, of liberal education at great liberal arts universities of which the one that you and I and Steve all attended, you know, is, is one, your class of 78, Steve and I are kind of class of 80. Um, Steve is actually kind of halfway between he starts in 79, I think, and, and ends up in in 80 in certain ways. Yes. We talk about our ancestors, our predecessors, people like Edmund Morgan and Don Kagan had a huge impact on both Steve. I mean, we both have the two of them, actually. Steve, you know, I think Ed, Edmund Morgan, your very first Edmund Morgan semester.
1: Was, Edmund Morgan was spectacular. I took a wonderful summer school course from him. Um, I, I was also very influenced by Thomas Pangle, a political philosopher. Whom I had, who taught the classics in Western political philosophy, yes. and close,
2: close readings of important yeah. political texts. but I, I
1: very much feel I feel so privileged to have gone to Yale College and Yale Law School because I just had such a wonderful education at both schools. Well, a couple
0: of words on on Don Kagan from my experience. Um, first of all, he uh, he taught my daughter um, at Yale um, twice. Wow. Uh, For the same course that you just described, but also uh, she took a a seminar on Athenian democracy with with him. The last course he ever taught at Yale, actually, uh, she she was in. Uh, He's passed away now. He also um, was the dean of Yale College, and he was the head of directed studies. And uh, he, I believe, was also involved with athletics at one point. I think he was the, the the head of the athletic department. At one my, point.
1: my oldest son Robert went to Yale College and did directed studies and benefited from it hugely. It's a wonderful program.
0: And speaking of sons named Robert, Robert Kagan, his son, um, was is also a Yale College uh, alum and actually you know someone in our the tradition class, of class
2: of eighty, class uh, of 80. and
0: someone in the tradition of Steve as well. Uh, some sometimes you know conservative but also uh, crosses the line sometimes so courageously courageously. there's so there's a lot there um but finally on on Don Kagan he also taught in ever scholar Yale for life um previously twice um so I had the privilege of learning from him and finally for our our listeners that are interested in Don Kagan if you go to open.yale.edu um you can actually take his course introduction to ancient greek history all of the lectures from beginning to end uh, are there uh, along with the syllabus and it's free so you can you can watch the great Donald kagan and i'm sure we all remember when he uh, he makes everyone uh, line up uh, on the stage High balance. <laughs> yes.
2: absolutely but, but but what steve said earlier is going to connect believe it or not our podcast audience um to the brief that we've done together because the brief that Steve and I did together is an originalist brief. Mm-hmm. That's because originalists do believe that we can learn things from history and that history actually can be relevant to the problems of our own era. And Steve and I were both benefited very much from studying some of the great historians at Yale College before we even set foot in law school.
1: One historian who they put us in touch with was Gordon Wood, whose work they assigned. And Gordon Wood is an enormous hero to both me and Akil. His scholarship is impeccable. He's a prodigious writer. He's as sharp as a tack, uh, even at the age of 90, uh, he is a truly remarkable human he, being.
2: He he lives in Providence. Um, he or lives you, in Providence. As and, does Steve. As do
1: I. Providence, Rhode Island, in the shadow of Roger Williams. And uh, we,
2: we occasionally have lunch together and just get caught up about things. And if our audience checks out the brief, I believe... In our table of authorities, after we cite the Supreme Court cases and state constitutional provisions and their other authorities, these are academic authorities, I believe the only academic authorities cited in this brief are, in alphabetical order, Akhil Amar, Vic Amar, Steve Calabresi, and Gordon Wood. Okay. <laughs> That's our club. Okay. I don't actually think there's any other living person cited among our other authorities, um, interestingly. Really? That's and right. and Steve Gordon came on this podcast earlier and, and we um Andy we should get him back.
0: Oh absolutely. And before I leave this biography section of our podcast, I I yeah. find it interesting that that you were elected the uh, I guess it's the speaker of the political union at a time president, when, president. The president of the political union. Thank you. No. At a, at a time when you described uh, certain movements on campus, like the editor in chief of the uh, Daily News is seeking to disinvite people. Of course, we know that this is the time oh. after William Shockey was invited onto campus right. and was shouted down. So not exactly, mm. you know, the bastion of of uh, free speech and you say no more conservative professors after uh, Bork and and company left. So, and yet here you are, you know, relatively conservative at the time, and you're you're elected to the uh, head of how how do how did right, you... and now
2: and now you see why I didn't see this <laughs> sob coming well, no, no, okay, because but... I, I thought I had lined the whole thing up and then like out of the right out of freaking nowhere Steve Calabresi you know uh, comes in and and the, the Yale Political Union today is a much more conservative organization than it was by now you see Andy why I didn't see it coming well okay but I'm <laughs> it, I'm not looking for political tips right now so much as
0: <laughs> as trying to see whether Um, there's a thread in your life of where you've been able to reach across the aisle um, and, and, you know,
1: goes back to this time. There was at the time we were, Akhil and I were running for president. uh, 45% of the political unions members belonged to the liberal party and the liberal party had dominated the union for the previous 20 years. And, um, in order to call, win, call me Hillary
2: Clinton, okay? See, I thought I had it in the bag. In order to win, I had
1: to put together a co- a coalition of the progressive socialists, the independent party, and the two conservative parties, the Tory party and the party of the right. And to do that, we divvied up the offices so that each party got a certain office, and then we ran a slate and our slate won all of the offices. But uh in part, I was driven to do that because I really like talking to people with different viewpoints. And, you know, I'm not uh a hardcore conservative, but I had many friends in the party of the right and in the Tory party. And I'm certainly not a socialist or a progressive, but I had friends in the progressive party. And, um, you know, I've always tried to reach across the aisle and try to listen to other people's points of view. And. Uh,
2: and this, this of and, course. And he turns out to be one of the, the most important and most successful presidents of the, uh, the Yale Political Union in the history of the Yale Political Union. This is true. Way before he co-founds the Federal Society, he's really reinvented the Yale Political Union in a
1: very interesting mold. We had something like 1,700 members as compared to maybe 300 members of the political union today. And in part, it's because we were making things happen on campus. We were doing things that were interesting that everyone wanted to talk about.
2: So then you, you found the Federalist Society. Not at the time, this, this juggernaut networking kind of power machine with strength among lawyers in law firms and deep connections to government and, and to the judiciary. It was none of that. It was a group of students who were interested in generating a little bit more ideologically diverse conversation in, frankly, liberal echo chambers like the Yale Law School.
1: One of our first events was to invite a 39-year-old professor named Richard Epstein from the University of Chicago to come to Yale to give a speech arguing that Lochner against New York was rightly decided. That was very controversial. There were probably 15 Yale faculty members peppering Epstein with questions. Epstein could talk so fast that he peppered back with questions. It was a great debate. Uh, I can still remember it happening in the faculty lounge and it was uh, our first major meeting and it paved the way for a conference which we held in April of 1982 where the Chicago and Yale federalist chapters together with some students at Harvard and Stanford sponsored a symposium on federalism and 170 people from all over the country showed up and 16 of them wanted to form new chapters. And they asked us, how do we form a chapter? And we, quickly scurried about and wrote a guide on how to form a chapter and from that's uh, essentially how the organization was born as a, as a group of students at the grassroots
2: level and so we're not talking because I was there at the beginning we're not talking about big funders, and a lot of legal or political power were talking about students who wanted to talk about ideas. And that's why I would go to their meetings, because I found them very interesting folks, even if I didn't always agree, which is why they used to call me the devil's advocate.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting, because there's actually a great tradition of this at Yale, because the secret societies, which have, you know, gotten a bum rap, I think, over, over the years as being only, you know, bastions of, of elitism, um, actually were founded because students felt that they were not getting enough training in rhetoric and discussion. The first secret society at Yale was Phi Beta Kappa, actually. Um, Wow. So uh, a friend of ours, uh, Dave Richards, has written a a book on the history of the secret society. Anyway, so this is uh, in some ways in a tradition. Uh, of that, I suppose. So, so do you think and Andy, that- we were going to ask
2: Steve, since we've talked a little bit, uh, he's already begun to talk about, about some of his role models more generally. Mm-hmm. Um, he and I have some of the same role models. We've already talked about Don Kagan or, and, and Ed Morgan and Gordon Wood, but maybe even at law school, he's mentioned names like um, abort and Mies, But, but I think given that yeah. I've talked a lot in previous episodes about some of my role models, it might be useful for our audience to hear some of his.
1: Of course. So it a, one role model Akil and I had in common was Joseph Goldstein uh, who taught criminal law and who taught my small group constitutional law. And he was a spectacular teacher and a beloved teacher and a very good friend uh, who has influenced me forever after. Joe Goldstein was an ACLU liberal, and he really meant ACLU liberal on everything and he liked my libertarian streak, and so we developed a real friendship. And it was also at Yale Law School that I met Robert Bork and became friends with him. And he invited me to watch the 1980 election returns between Carter and Reagan at his house, along with his son, Charles, who was a friend of mine from college. And uh, we watched the returns at his house And about 1030, when it was clear that Reagan had won, Bork said he was going to bed, but we were welcome to stay as long as we wanted, we sensed that suddenly the Senate might be in play. And so the students there, me and the judge's son and two or three others, stayed up all night at his house watching the Republicans capture the Senate for the first time since 1954. And when Bohr came down in the morning, he laughed still find us glued to his television set. I then went to an 8.45 a.m. torts class taught by Peter Schock, which was essentially uh, had 82 students in it. And Peter turned the class into a group therapy session over how something this horrendous could have happened in America and where had the left gone wrong. And after about 40 minutes of blather, uh, Shuck looked up and said, is there anyone in the room who voted for Ronald Reagan? And I and one other student raised our hands. And uh, uh, I thought to myself, I really want to have lunch with that other student. <laughs> and that was an impetus for starting the Federalist chapter.
0: Wow. And so, so Professor Goldstein was a, a big influence on you.
1: Um, in, in what way? He taught me about the uh, he was the value of uh, liberty. He reinforced my libertarian instincts. I think he taught me about having very high standards in terms of teaching. He was uh, really committed to excellence. He was uh, enormous fun to talk to. He was a, a co-author with Anna Freud, Sigmund Freud's daughter, of uh, several books. Is very interested in law and psychology, which I was interested in as well. He told me that he thought I would be politically successful, and uh, uh, I didn't quite believe him, but I guess he had more experience at that point than I did. But uh, he was a wonderful man.
2: Um, let's put up on our podcast show notes my tribute to Joe when he passed. I was at a memorial service. Joe Goldstein was a person of utter rectitude, and honesty. He was very straight with you. He knew what a good argument was and what a not good argument was. And there was just an integrity that that he brought to the academy. I was very close to Joe. I actually co-taught um, with him. And there's a, a two or three page tribute that I think I'd love to have put up on the podcast.
1: I wholly agree with that. Integrity and rectitude were you know, the keys to understanding him.
2: Um, so this is going to be relevant because I'm very proud of Steve for certain courageous things that he's done, where he actually went against his party or his ideological um, uh, soulmates on, on certain things we're going to talk about in connection with impeaching Trump or uh, uh, joining the independent state legislature brief and war versus Harper. And on the other side, um, you know, our audience members will know that I happen to be, for example, um, very pro-choice. But I don't think Roe is a was a good opinion. That's just intel- as a matter of intellectual honesty, and that's the Joe Goldstein tradition. I'm not I saying he would have agreed with me about those judgments, but he would say, "Achille, you're not supposed to be a politician. You're supposed to actually be a law professor, and you have to call it as you see it." And if that's politically inconvenient. And so what? This is our job. So Goldstein has influenced me and I think influenced Steve.
0: Okay. So Akil has told me a million stories about Guido Calabresi. So um, I, I'm sure our audience would like to know a little bit about, you know, your relationship with, with him and, when, and if you have any so, great Guido stories. Love quite, to hear quite, quite simply. Uh, so um, tell,
1: them, tell them who he is. My Guido Calabresi is my uncle. He is uh, the younger brother of my father uh, by two years. My father was uh, an oncologist, treated cancer. My grandfather was a cardiologist, uh, and he was uh, a member of the family who went into law, not medicine. Uh, I grew up in a doctor's household. Um, one of, I have many memories of... Uh, Guido and of the way he's influenced me. I guess what I would say is that uh, I am as close to Guido as an uncle as I was to my father as a son. He's been wonderful about spending time with me and sharing time with me. One of my favorite Guido stories is when I was about five or six years old, he took me for a walk outside my parents' house. And I said to him very eagerly that I had just learned that I was born in Madison, Wisconsin. And he replied, yes, and that means that you're the first Calabrese who's eligible to be elected president of the United States. And I said, Uncle Guido, you mean you and Daddy can't be elected president of the United States? And he said, that's right. We were born in Milan, Italy, so we can't be elected president And then he paused for a moment and said, but I could be appointed to the Supreme Court. So I said, well, Uncle Guido, how do you get appointed to the Supreme Court? And he said, well, it's a little bit complicated, but basically the president picks you. So I said, well, I'll get myself elected president and I'll appoint you to the Supreme Court. (laughs) And at that point he said... That would be the reverse of nepotism, because in Latin, nepotism means uncles favoring their nephew, and that would be a case of a nephew favoring his uncle. And I was five years old when I had this conversation
0: with him. A little precocious.
1: A little precocious, so... First of all note that the bar was set very high. I was the first Calabresi eligible to run for president. You know, was yes. the expectation.
2: And he did become president of the Yale Political Union <laughs> at the expense of yours truly. I hasten to remind our audience. Well, and, who is
0: it? William Howard Taft that said he was promoted to uh to to the president of Yale or something after he left the uh, presidency of the United States. Something like that. Yes.
1: Yeah. So uh, so, uh, bar bar was set high. Bar Guido set the bar high for himself. He, high for himself. He you know he made it clear he was angling to be appointed to the Supreme Court, even though he was probably about thirty five years old when they had this conversation. If that maybe maybe even uh, younger than
2: that. Um, and, and Steve, let me jump in just to remind our audience who's not law trained, because some of the folks are, and some are, who Guido Calabresi is. Um, Guido Calabresi is by acclamation one of the greatest, um, academics of the la- legal academics of the last three quarters of the century. Um, he is the, um, uh, along with one other person or two other people, perhaps generally reckoned as The godfather of a very important movement of the law and economics movement, um, which did not really exist when Guido was a student at Yale Law School. He went to Yale College. He then uh, he did a, a Rhodes Scholarship. He was at Yale Law School. He clerked for Hugo Black. Um, and then started teaching at a prodigiously young age. Um, one of the two or three youngest professors ever to, to teach at Yale Law School and to, to get tenured at Yale Law School and to get a chair at Yale Law School. Um, truthfully, I'm actually in that, that, that tradition, but I'm in that tradition only because Guido Calabresi hired me at a young age. Again, Yale College, Yale Law School didn't have a, a Rose scholarship, but, but Guido Calabresi, now, he didn't do constitutional law quite as a scholar. He did torts, um, which is considered private law, not public law. Public law is especially about government um, action, and, and torts is um, when one person sometimes sues another, like in an automobile accident um, or for a libel or defamation. The Guido was. For the burned and hairy hand. Ah, the burned and hairy hand, okay. Right. Um, so, but that was also see uh, arguably a contracts issue. You see, mm. because, uh, with the, with the physician, um, it's where contract meets tort in, in in a certain respect. But but anyway, and the author of the paper chase, just uh, uh, Mr. Osborne, just died this week. Um, a very nice obit in the New York Times recently. But Guido redefines his field, which is torts. In the end, it's not for him just about torts. It's an entire way of thinking about law, law and economics which will expand to law and social studies more generally, someone like Cass Sunstein very much in the Guido Calabresi tradition. So that would be enough, Dayenu, for any one person. But Then he goes on to be a dean, one of the greatest deans in the history of the Yale Law School. And then after that, he goes on to the bench uh, where he's a very distinguished judge, now senior judge of the United States Court of Appeals, For the second circuit. So Guido Calabresi led three amazing lives in the law. Any one of which, you know, would have sufficed to, to make him one of the, the all time greats. Um, so to speak, any one of these would have been enough. He, he's one of the, the most transformative legal academics of, of the century. He was one of the most successful law uh, and university administrators of the modern era, and he was a very, very, and is a very, very distinguished federal judge. Now, two things about Guido. One, he has this amazing ambition and talent combined with modesty. You know, here's what he once um, said. He said, you know, Akhil, from a certain point of view, I've been a bit of a disappointment. I am an economist of a certain sort, but I never won the Nobel Prize. And I'm a university administrator, but I never became president of Yale. I'm only dean of the Yale Law School. I'm a judge, um, federal judge, but I never became a justice. Here's what's amazing. In an alternative universe, it is actually very imaginable that Guido Calabresi would have gotten the Nobel Prize in economics or become president of Yale as opposed to Benno Schmidt or Rick Levin. Guido was in contention for those things. In an alternative universe, he might have been on the Supreme Court. So, But the thing is, those are three very different pyramids. Calling upon very different skill sets. Being a great academic is very different than being a great administrator. Be- it's just very different than being a great jurist. And Guido was extraordinary at all of these things. So that's one, th- and that he retains this modesty about him. Okay. The second thing that you need to know, our audience needs to know, is that Guido Calabresi is a, a preeminent liberal. He is very close, he was very close to Bill Clinton and and Hillary Clinton, uh, for example. So when Steve Calabresi shows up at the Yale Law School as a student, as a kind of right leaning libertarian conservative student, he has got the same last name as Guido Calabresi, but a very different political persona. So, and it's not so easy, you know, I'm guessing, to come to a, a place that Guido so dominated intellectually, one of the three or four. Bar none, preeminent thinkers at the Yale Law School. Everyone at the Yale Law School knows the name of Calabresi, and then Steve comes up as uh, comes here as a student, and he's got a slightly different vision of things, and ends up doing something as significant as co founding the Federalist Society. Wow!
0: I mean, I think uh, you know, I'm not at the Yale Law School, you know, but. If anybody said Guido, you know exactly who they were talking about. Correct. in you know,
2: like Cher, Sting, Madonna, Prince, or the article—the artist formerly known as Prince. Yes, you well, got I think it. It's, I think it's more yes, like so. like
0: LeBron. Okay, some he ha- Jeff, because those he, people have actually dropped their last name. Yeah, he does you have know. a last name. Yeah, yes. So, okay, so, um, but but, but LeBron still hasn't. Yeah. But yet, you know yeah. exactly who it
1: is. Yes. Right. So absolutely. I think Steve,
0: you've also expressed a certain admiration for uh, Ed Meese as well, isn't that right?
1: Yes, um, I was very, very lucky to work for him as a special assistant for a year and a half at the start of his period as Attorney General, and basically um, I started as on his personal staff in late June on July ninth. Late June of which year? Nineteen eighty-five. I'm sorry. Uh, On July 9th, 1985, he was invited to give a welcoming address to the ABA, which was having its annual meeting in Washington, D.C. And they were expecting the usual pabulum, you know, about uh, the importance of the legal profession and uh, the guild and all of that. And instead, he came and gave a major policy address and uh, first, as a former San Diego law professor, he graded the Supreme Court on its just-concluded term, and he gave the, the court an F for its federalism cases, which included Garcia against San Antonio okay, Metropolitan County. Uh, he gave the court a B for continuing to whittle away at the exclusionary rule, and then he gave the court an F for its religion clause readings, readings. And he said the problem with these cases is that they reveal a jurisprudence which is incoherent and is driven entirely by a love of policy outcomes and not by devotion to the Constitution and to the principles that animate it. And he said, as Attorney General, I am going to make all decisions based on jurisprudence of original intention. We will file briefs accordingly. Uh, I will hire, appoint judges accordingly. I will give many more speeches, which he did, uh, accordingly. And, uh, it was a very bold speech and it drew a response from Justice William Brennan and Justice John Paul Stevens to which Mies then responded further, uh, in other speeches. But it started a great debate in the nation's capital between the attorney general and two legendary Supreme Court justices over how to interpret the Constitution. And in part because Ed Nies was a former law professor uh, turned attorney general, he cared about ideas, and he, uh, he showed that by appointing an unprecedented number of law professors to be federal judges. Robert Bork, Antonin Scalia, Richard Posner, uh, uh, Ralph Winter, J. Harvey Wilkinson, Frank Easterbrook, Pasco Bowman, uh, John Noonan on the Ninth Circuit, Stephen, uh, Williams. Stephen Williams on the D.C. Circuit, Doug Ginsburg on the D.C. Circuit, and no president since has done anything like that, and no president since has had the kind of transformative effect on American law. And the fact that we're still talking about originalism today, 37 years after Meese left office, shows what an extraordinary impact he had. Franklin Roosevelt's first term attorney general, Homer Cummings, served from 1933 to 1939. And so he was attorney general during the great switch of 1937, which he helped engineer But 39 years after Homer Cummings left office, Jimmy Carter was president, and nobody in the world knew who Homer Cummings was or what he had stood for. 37 years after Ed Meese left office, people are still talking about originalism and the ideas that he put on the agenda. And I think he's quite simply the most intellectually impactful, I hate that word, but I can't think of a better one, Uh, the most intellectually impactful attorney general we've ever had. He was also Ronald Reagan's best friend, and his closeness to Reagan is paralleled by Bobby Kennedy's closeness to his brother, John Kennedy. Except the difference is that Meese was attorney general for much longer. He did much more than just advise on the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was on Reagan's National Security Council for all eight years of Reagan's administration, he helped shape foreign policy, the foreign policy that won the Cold War and that rolled back communism out of Central and Eastern Europe. Uh, and he was, well, he was attorney general. He was also chairman of Reagan's Domestic Policy Council, which meant that any domestic policy initiative in the cabinet that went to Reagan went through Mies nice to Reagan. So, uh, And he did all of this in a completely humble and modest way, so that today almost nobody knows who he was, because he never claimed credit for any of it. And that's the story I'm going to tell in the book that I'm writing about him.
2: Uh, Let me just jump in here, just a couple of of small little things. So one, he's saying Mies is kind of the the brain behind Reagan's success, and that Mies was a modest person who didn't Mm -hmm. always try to grab the credit. Now... Just like I'm trying to learn from Steve, Steve learns from Mies. So Steve actually is to Meese what Meese was to Reagan. See, Steve is actually whispering stuff in Meese's ear and and writing speeches, but but isn't trying to grab credit for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Steve ha- has a modesty about him, very attractive. Steve once told me, he says, Akil, you know, you'd be amazed at how much you can actually get done if you don't insist on taking all the credit for it. Oh, I learned something really important from Steve. But he also, he let slip something. I just want to highlight it. He said, "Misappointed, appointed, me appointed, Mies appointed, you know, these justices and judges. Well, technically, that's Ronald Reagan. But what does Ronald Reagan know about law or constitutional law? Answer, not very much. So, He's saying Meese really did the picking, and Mies' team. Why am I mentioning that? Because Trump thinks he picked that he, you know, um, Amy Coney Barrett and before her Brett Kavanaugh and before him Neil Gorsuch. No, he didn't pick any of them. He didn't know them from a hole in the wall. They were picked by the Federal Society that Steve, you know, um, helped create. Um, in the same way that Reagan's top nominees were basically picked by Meese, and I say. Thank God for that when it comes to uh, Trump, because if Trump had picked actually his own folks, there'd be, you know, Judge Judy, you know, or Sidney Powell or, or John Eastman or, you know, just or Rudy a, Giuliani. A, a bunch of, <laughs> of, of, of clowns and, and crooks. The proof of it is that after he lost the
1: election, Trump filed 70 lawsuits in state and federal court and he lost every single lawsuit he filed. Including many law, including losing many lawsuits in federal court before judges who he had appointed. But the fact is that the judges he appointed on the recommendation of federal society members were committed to the rule of law, and Trump was not committed to the rule of law. And so he deserved to lose, and he did. His own judges ruled against him.
0: So, all right, so you've told us that you, you, know, you founded the Federalist Society to encourage discussion of things that weren't being discussed, essentially, um, right. or, or at least um, in, a, in a vein that wasn't being discussed. Right. Um, and do you feel that that's something... That, so, when you did that, was it conservatives talking to conservatives even uh, then, or was it conservatives talking to across the aisle, even from the beginning?
1: From the the beginning, we were talking across the aisle. We we were a group of maybe 10 or 15 students out of several hundred at the law school, and we had enough people to organize an event, and we could organize debates that were interesting enough so that a crowd would come and listen to them. But uh, we absolutely were reaching out. And what we were trying to do was hold fun debates that people would want to listen to. And some of them were intramural conservative debates, debates between libertarian economic conservatives and uh, social issue conservatives, for example. Others of them were debates with people who were were actually on the lap. But... um, um, it was it what one there, there were very various elements to it. One thing we were always conscious of while we were in law school was that we were vastly, vastly outnumbered. In uh, I think my my most uh, itty moment, I felt that the federalist chapter at Yale Law School was a little bit like the Mujahideen fighting against the Soviet Union or the Contras fighting against the Sandinistas. Or Umita fighting in Angola, that we were a little pocket of Reaganites, basically in a far in foreign territory, trying to fight for the principles that Reagan was in, in, uh, announcing at the national level and that we believed in, and that we were committed to.
0: Maybe so, but the Mujahideen don't invite the Russians over for dinner. Um, no. so, so that uh, you know so so but nevertheless it's you know as you say you're trying to be you know to ha- bring in the the other side well presumably it's only not only for conservatives to listen to that but for uh, liberals to listen to it also absolutely right so you were so you, what you're describing is not what i would call an echo chamber
1: no not at all and mm-hmm. in fact we were re- absolutely reaching out to people on the left and uh, in fact, I was once accused by someone on the left of being uh, representing Reaganism with a human face.
2: <laughs>
1: because, you know, the argument was, if how can you be a Reaganite and be reasonable and a nice guy and fun to talk to, basically? And uh, that, that was essentially what we were trying to work against. The law school at that point was so far to the left that... Uh, One beloved teacher, Owen Fist, said that not only did he not know anyone who voted for Reagan, he didn't know anyone who knew anyone who voted for (laughs) Reagan. And, and of course, that was Peter Chuck's reaction when out of his 82 students that um, morning after Election Day, only two of them raised their hands and said they'd voted for Reagan. I, I was convinced Reagan was going to win When we watched the uh, Reagan Carter debate a week before the election, and I watched it at the law school, in the law school lounge with liberal Yale law students, and they all left the room thinking that John Anderson was going to be their candidate. He was the third party liberal Republican who ran that year. I figured if Yale law students were voting for John Anderson, then Ronald Reagan was going to win. Mm.
0: So would you and you, you've you've also said that to this day that uh, the, I know Akil is invited to speak at at Federal Society events. Absolutely, yes. You have he other knows. other uh, you know Democrats and uh, you know middle of the road people, or whatever, speaking at your at at your events like on panels and things like that. Um, yes. What about the audience? Is the audience for the Federal Society a mixed audience, as you described it was uh, at the at its at its founding?
1: Yeah, it depends on on which Federal Society events one's talking about. Uh, for uh, events among the student chapters, or for the student symposia, I think we do still draw a mixed group of people. Um, I think our national lawyers convention in which will be held in two weeks in Washington, DC, is really a gathering overwhelmingly of Federalist Society members, and they come to hear debates between liberals and conservatives, but the people who come to that convention are overwhelmingly conservatives or libertarians. And, and I stress see, say,
2: see hang on and and the keynote debate this year. Um, which is uh, sponsored by the Rosenkrantz family, the same family that sponsored um an originalism program at Yale Law School. And Nicholas Quinn Rosencrantz is a, a very distinguished Yale Law School graduate, one of my favorite students, and Bob Rosencrantz's father has also um been a very generous benefactor. But this year, their the keynote debate at the lawyers convention in DC, it's actually it's just called the Rosencrantz Debate. Features yours truly against one of my favorite students and my friend, John Yu. And we're going to be debating, you guessed it, ISL, Independent State Legislature Theory. And, oh, I'm really looking forward to being able to make the case before a largely conservative audience but they're hearing, they're picking, you know, this is not a set-up debate. They're picking what they consider to be, um, whom they consider to be, a strong figure on one side, yours truly, against um, a powerful advocate on the other side, John U. They want to hear the best um, argument on each side.
1: John U. John as you probably know, is a professor at Berkeley who worked in the George W. Bush administration and wrote the memos justifying waterboarding that were very controversial, uh, so but he's a very bright guy, but not someone I always agree
2: with. But someone that sometimes you do agree with on sometimes. executive power, and sometimes I agree with him. Steve wrote a book on the unitary executive theory, which um, has different variations. John U's variation is the president has all sorts of uh, foreign policy and, and and war authority. John U John U unitary executive is is a, really about the breadth of power even vis-a-vis Congress. Steve's version is different. He's saying if it's executive power, it's presidential as distinct from uh, being vested in the attorney general or the secretary of defense or the secretary of of commerce. Within Whatever the power is that's not congressional and not judicial, it's largely presidential. That's a different point. It's a point really about power within the executive branch and not quite about power of the executive compared to the um, legislature, the judiciary. He's nodding his head here. Yeah, yeah it's a it claim that the
1: president can remove or fire subordinates in the executive Within branch, his own branch. Within his own branch, to control his own branch. But it's not a claim of prerogative power in foreign policy.
2: Um, and John Hughes is. Now, these are two folks. They both t- use the language of, of unitary executive, but in slightly different ways. Now, in the brief, one of the things that's cited at a key point is a book I actually have it Steve right up there on my shelf Unitary Executive no. that's the title of the book it's by Steve Calabresi and Christopher you. We haven't yet talked about Guido Calabresi, but I think we should at a certain point. That's Steve's uncle. But, um, I was going to blurb the book. So that remember, this is Steve Calabresi and Christopher You, okay? It's not John You. It's a different you. There's a very famous person that most of our audience will, will know. He's the dean who hired me, um, uh, Guido Calabresi. We, 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 should talk about him, uh, Steve. Uh, but I was, when I, um, I was going to blurb the book. And this is what I was going to say in the blurb. No, not that Calabresi. And no, not that you y o o better. Um, That was going to be a very funny inside baseball blurb. But John U is a different kind of unitary executive guy than Steve Calabresi and Christopher U.
0: So the um getting back to the Federalist Society on this, so I think it's become uh, among people that don't know much about it, it's been a little become almost a uh, you know a a meme or or you know sort of a a stand-in. For mm-hmm. uh, anything on the right, right. Um, so you know, I, I'd like to give you an opportunity to. You know, we have a diverse audience, and from a political yeah. point of view, to yeah. you know, sort of clarify where where do you see the federal side? What is its purpose now? Where, where does it stand in the political spectrum?
1: I think I think our purpose is very much what our purpose was when we got started, which is to provide an organization and a gathering place. Where people on the right, lawyers on the right, uh, and even on the moderate left, can get together and talk safely and peaceably about ideas, can hear debates from some of the best people on very widely divergent sides of issues. It's, you know, just as when we were ten or fifteen law students surrounded by four hundred liberals, Today, you know, our our lawyers' convention have two thousand two hundred lawyers, but the ABA has two hundred thousand lawyers, or something like that. And so, you know, we remain a group that um, supports conservative and libertarian ideas and that hosts debates. One of the th- biggest misconceptions about the Federal Society is the idea that the Federal Society picks judges. is involved in politics and that is simply not true members of the federalist society have jobs and sometimes their jobs are working in an administration or working for some political outfit and they take positions on things as individuals but the society has a policy of never endorsing legislation never litigating a case or filing an amicus brief, never endorsing a judicial candidate. Uh, the society itself did not draw up the list of 22 judges that Trump paraded about in 2016. The list was drawn up by Leonard Leo, who works at the Federal Society, but he did that in his own personal capacity. Now, it so happens that I like the list he came up with, Although if I were drawing up a list of 22 people, it would look different. But there's there, the Federal Society does not pick judges, endorse candidates, endorse legislation, litigate cases or any of that. We are a debating organization and, and a membership organization that provides support to people who are really under attack because conservative and libertarian lawyers and law students are really under attack in the legal environment as it exists today
0: it se- it seems that when a uh, a judge comes up for a nomination or that where there's an opening on the supreme court or there's a prominent maybe a high uh, appellate court opening and there's a republican president that's getting ready to nominate um the judges do seem to be disproportionately uh members of the federalist society um um so it it I think people think of this as a conservative credential that one's necessary to have, that's necessary that one has. Do you think that that's a, a fair uh, perception?
1: Um, no, because I don't think it's a credential it's necessary to have. I think that if one had the other other indicia that you'd be a great judge, you'd get picked anyway. Um, one thing I can say about uh, judicial appointments during the Trump period is that our point of contact with the Trump campaign was with Don McGahn, who became his first White House counsel. And Don McGahn had been a member of the Federal Society since 1996. Uh, he went to a very unprestigious law school. I've forgotten the name of, of it. And he came to the First Lawyers Division conference a little bit wondering how he would be received. And he ended up having lunch with Ed Meese and Meese's top aide and talking to them at length about national politics. And he went away very, very impressed. So when he became Trump's go-to, per- when he became Trump's White House counsel and leading advisor on traditional issues, he turned to the Federalist Society to get advice on people to hire and as Don McGahn said in one of his lectures at the Federalist Society, he said, I keep reading in the newspaper about how the Trump administration has outsourced judicial selection to the Federalist Society. But instead, I'm the White House counsel and I hired 20 Federal Society lawyers to work for me. So I would call that insourcing judicial selection of the Federalist Society, not outsourcing it. And that's a fair point. I mean, those people were working as government lawyers. They may have come up through the Federalist Society, but no one was from the Society was telling them what to do or even particularly making suggestions to them. Did they choose a lot of other Federalist Society members to be judges? In the natural course of things, they probably would because they would have met that those would be the people they would meet. Uh, did they choose exclusively Federal Society members? I'm sure they, I'm sure not. And I certainly would hope not. And, you know, one thing about the Federal Society is I really never wanted it to be like YAF, Young Americans for Freedom, uh, or CPAC, or like the Dartmouth Review, which was an inflammatory newspaper at Dartmouth that used to do things just to make the left mad. I wanted the Federal Society to be about ideas, I wanted it to be about debate, I wanted it to be an intellectual organization. And the fact that members of the society have, in their personal capacity, had great political success, like Leonard Leo or David McIntosh or Lee Liberman Otis, uh is independent of their connection to the Federal Society. For example, David McIntosh, one of the co-founders of the Federal Society is today the chairman of the club for growth. The club for growth is probably one of the leading PACs raising money for Republican Senate candidates. Now no one runs articles saying the federal society is picking Senate candidates or managing campaigns. They know David is doing that in his own individual capacity through the club for growth. The same thing was true with Leonard Leo and judges. I mean, he, he, what he did, he did in his own personal capacity. He never ran anything by me, never asked for my advice. If I gave him advice, he sometimes listened to it and sometimes didn't. Um, and there are a lot of other folks at the society who've had sort of similar exper- experiences.
2: You know, so, up- so, so, Steve, let me just jump in because I then want to uh, um, revise and extend my remarks earlier, correct the record I agree with what Steve has just said. I said a lot of these judges, they're Fed SOC judges and not Trump judges, but I should have been a little bit more clear. They're you know, they're affiliated and informally with the Federalist Society in all sorts of ways, but the Federal Society as such didn't pick them. And so if, if I gave that misimpression um, earlier, I, I do want to correct it because I think Steve – Is, is right. What I am in effect saying, just informally, as a matter of kind of political science, as a matter of kind of network theory, these judges whom Trump appointed and justices are not coming from Trump world. They're coming from a world that's more shaped by the federal society, a world that they began to inhabit as law students when they were in a student chapter, someone like Brett Kavanaugh or something, a student chapter at Yale going to FedSoc meetings, which to repeat are you know, just really interesting debates between conservatives or sometimes between conservatives and, and and liberals. So he's right that actually there's not some secret Federalist Society official endorsement of, of any sort, but many of the people that are very influential on the conservative side of the judicial spectrum are affiliates in one way or another of the Federalist Society. And, and
1: I'll give you a classic example of... You know, the Leonard Leo has gotten a tremendous amount of press for his involvement with Trump and has been mentioned a great deal. And I admire Leonard enormously. He's been an invaluable employee. Now he's an invaluable benefactor of the society. He's done many very great things. But when it came to picking, uh, to Trump picking his Supreme Court nominees, Don McGahn was basically, as he'd like to call himself, a New Jersey Republican. And what he meant by that was that he was a libertarian. He thought Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided, but he was pro-choice as a matter of public policy. Leonard, Leo, is uh, a very socially conservative Catholic. Uh, Leonard's top pick for the Supreme Court, I'm sure, would have been Judge William Pryor, who is uh, on the 11th Circuit, and uh who's once called Roe versus Wade an abomination. Don McGahn didn't pick Bill Pryor for the Supreme Court. Instead, he picked a kind of quirky libertarian from Colorado named Neil Gorsuch, and he picked a somewhat moderate Republican from Washington, D.C., Brett Kavanaugh. So it was Don McGahn who did the picking there. Leonard was in the room. He was offering advice. He might have had a veto, but Don did the picking of those two people and they bear his imprint. Leonard wouldn't have picked those two people if he'd had his druthers. So it, it, the the process, um, the, the bottom line is that the, the Federal Society does not pick judges. Individual Federal Society members may or may not play a role in it, depending on their own viewpoints.
2: And here's the proof of this, which we're going to talk about in great detail, Andy. Steve Calabresi helped Trump in all sorts of ways, as you're hearing, kind of informally, indirectly, and will eventually call for Trump's impeachment in an op-ed in The New York Times, which I kind of egged him. (laughs) I encouraged him to do that, but he listened to me, and I don't think he actually regrets having done that. And then later on, Steve Calabresi is going to join an an anti-ISL brief that I'm sure Donald Trump you know hates and, and 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 I bet Leonard Leo may not like you know what we've done on that. So, people affiliated with the Federalist Society will have different views on really important issues. And I'm proud of Steve for both the, um, the position he took in the brief and the position you know he took on peaching Donald Trump. You know, this is cheeky of me, but I think our mutual friend, our, our mentor. Um, Joe Goldstein would be proud of you too, Steve. Thank you. I think I think he would be. If if the events
1: of January 6 weren't uh, cause for impeachment, then nothing is cause for impeachment. I mean that what what Trump tr- did denying his loss for months, stoking up a base, persuading 65 percent of Republicans that he'd actually won, when in fact he knew perfectly well that he'd lost and then organized, gathering a mob to march on Capitol Hill was uh, despicable.
2: Steve was a, a publicly opposed well before January 6th, well before the November election. He wrote an op-ed in the New York Times when Trump was just floating the trial balloon of postponing the election because of, of COVID. So that was way before, that's when Steve crossed the Rubicon, and, and, and I was, you know, uh, the ferryman of that, saying, yes, yeah, Steve, I'll, I'll, I will help you cross the Rubicon. This is a good, this is a good, um, uh, this is now the time to cross the river. And and here's one of the ways in which
1: Akil helped me with that, which is that one of the things Akeel has always said to me that made a big impression on me is that Abraham Lincoln held a presidential election in 1864 when it looked like he was going to lose And if he had lost, secession would have been a fait accompli. But Lincoln held the election anyway because he thought it was too important. He thought you don't cancel or move presidential elections. And when I woke up in July of 2020 and saw on the front page that Trump was wondering about whether we should move the election because of COVID, I was furious. And I wrote an op-ed saying, this is uh, – the we we never move presidential elections in this country. We didn't do it for the Civil War. We didn't do it during World War II. Uh, this is outrageous. Uh, if this proposal is withdrawn right away, this is this this type of speech is the kind of speech which would warrant talk of impeachment. And so that was I denounced Trump quite vigorously at that point and the Senate Republicans met in caucus and they came out and Mitch McConnell announced stone face that there would be no moving of the election and Trump dropped the issue. But I think basically by the summer, Trump was already anticipating that he might lose and possibly already anticipating planning, challenging the results that he might lose. And at the first sign of that, I said, get out of here.
0: We're still seeing the the aftermath of that today with the elections in Brazil.
2: Yeah, absolutely, you know? and um, we're going to talk about the ISL brief um, and Moore versus Harper. Where Steve and I and Vic are all on the same team. There is, and there, and what's interesting is there's almost no prominent conservative intellectual on the other side. Not a Michael McConnell. Not a Will. Bode. Filing an amicus brief, you know, squarely on the other side. Our dear friend Peter Keisler, another person involved in uh, Yale College Political Union, and, uh, he was speaker of the Yale uh, Political Union, um, and then when there at the, at the beginning of the founding of the Federal Society, Peter Keisler, acting attorney. General the United States in an earlier Republican administration uh, signed an amicus brief, basically opposed to the ISL theory. So there's no prominent conservative intellectual. Champion ISL theory, except for only one name that our audience would have heard, a prominent conservative intellectual of a certain sort on the other side, uh, who, who wrote an amicus brief. And I, and I say, thank God that you wrote this amicus brief because his name is John Eastman. And we're very happy that he's on the other side. So now you see the connection between actually what Steve is talking about even before the 2020 election, with Trump talking about postponing the election, and then January 6th, which was a John Eastman production and Donald Trump production from start to finish. And that's actually connected to ISL because ISL is a certain kind of clever legal move to, to basically steal the election away from the voters in various states. That's what John Eastman was trying to do in January 6th. That's what he's still trying to do with his ISL brief. And Steve and I wrote, a count- and, and Vic wrote this counter brief. So see, these things are connected.
0: You know, it's, uh, on the one hand, it's heartening. On the other hand, it's worrisome because if you have the, tire- the entire conservative intellectual establishment uh, opposing this and you have Trump and his, you know, cronies Although Trump isn't, you know, directly involved yet, but you can be sure that he would be in favor of it, um, of of ISL, and you have a large percentage of the Republican Party so still loyal to Trump and candidates that he endorses. It speaks to a certain loss of uh, confidence in the intellectual establishment, or. You know, Absolutely, works. it does. Absolutely, it does. And, and
1: part of the problem is that the intellectual establishment has refused to hire any conservatives for 40 years now. And so there aren't leading professors at Yale Law School who can come out and say, this guy is a nutcase. You know, I can say it from my platform at Northwestern, but if I'd have a much bigger microphone if I were at Yale or Harvard. The truth is that the amount of support Trump has is scary. He really could get the nomination again, and I think he could conceivably win. And I think that could conceivably be the end of American democracy. I honestly believe that Trump is the biggest threat to the Constitution since the Civil War.
0: So now you have, um, you know, yourself um, aligning here on this brief with, you know, two liberal professors, at least Democrats, and. So if, as you say, I mean, it's a fair, I think a fair statement that there are not a lot of conservative uh, faculty at the top law schools. So yes, this is probably the best you can do is to speak, you know, with one voice with the liberal establishment, Um, you know, and, and actually, of course, in in many ways, even if there were a lot of conservative, it's still better to have it, you know, to have both sides uh, speaking together.
2: And so we, I just want to correct one thing. So it is true that Steve's formal affiliation, his permanent gig, is at the Northwestern University, Northwestern Princeton School of Law. Um, but for something like eight years? Nine, nine, year, nine, nine years. Nine
1: years. I've had the title of Visiting Professor of Law at Yale Law School.
2: And the reason he's had that is because Steve and Akil have taught a course together every year for the last nine years. Steve is a visiting professor, and he's entitled to do that if he can find someone on the permanent faculty to to co-teach with. We've been co-teachers. Tell them a little bit
1: about this class that we've co-taught together. So first what I should tell you is Yale has a rule that its faculty members can co-teach with a ham sandwich if they want to. (laughs) So I'm the ham sandwich here. Second, at one point, I was proposed that I be given the authority to teach on my own, which requires a two thirds vote the vote did materialize, and so I'm stuck teaching. I I'm stuck teaching with the keel. I, it's the only way I can teach. He's my babysitter. I mean, they I, they they need me him to babysit me when I'm in front of Yale law students right. to monitor. Which what they is not say. what the
2: students say. The students think that he's my babysitter because I'm always popping off and, and mouthing off. But we've had a great run. We've been teaching a seminar
1: on originalism in the living Constitution which we've now taught together for, I think, about four years. And uh, we talk about... And we this, taught
2: other courses. And before we taught that.
1: other courses before that, a comparative constitutional law class, because that's something else I'm interested in.
2: But where he's really the expert, and he wrote the leading casebook in the field, and I've learned so much from him. Our originalism course
1: covers the great cases in the constitutional law canon, Discussed from an originalist perspective by me and by Akil. And overwhelmingly, we agree with respect to these cases. You know, either points here and points there that we would emphasize differently, but it's striking how much we agree. It's also striking that the second year and third year law students who take our course have mostly not read the constitutional law cases that we're teaching because. Yale doesn't really teach federalism or separation of powers very much. And even on the 14th Amendment, they teach only the Warren and Berger court opinions. They don't teach the post-Reconstruction opinions when the 14th Amendment got really messed up. So we're offering something that no one else is offering, you know, with this class. So
0: um, just to get back for a second to the, to this question, it's really part of the, the idea of you you guys teaching together. Um, so you're both crossing the aisle. Um, you have the friendship, you have the respect, but you're still, you know, have different opinions on certain things. Yes. Um, and I think especially, you know, there's certain risks in doing that in this day, these days of cancellation and, and other issues. And I would, I suppose this you know, for, for the, the chairman of the federalist society, I would think there'd be particular risks. So for example, um, we're going to talk about the brief, but um, you know you have the Federalist Society has certain patrons. i you mentioned uh, Leonard Leo has certainly been in the news uh, wielding the uh, the pocketbook um, mm-hmm. lately in, in a big way. Um have there been any repercussions for for you or the Federalist society um, as a whole? Uh, from these- no one
1: No one from the Federal Society has said a word to me about the amicus brief since it was filed. I've considered raising the subject with uh, some of my friends there, but no one has complained to me about it or said a word about it, and I don't expect that they will. It's possible that Leonard, when I see him at the convention, will complain about it because Leonard funded the other side in this case. Uh, and is So just, commi-
2: pa- just pause on that just for a moment. Leonard Leo funded the other side in this case, and Steve is on our side. Yeah,
1: but wow. but that's the federalist society. We don't, you know, we're, we are we are a collection of people who are somewhat right of center who do not always agree. And you know, I love Leonard Leo, and I think he does a great job at what he does. But I don't always agree with him, and on in this particular issue, I don't agree with him.
2: Now have you gotten other feedback other than from the Federal Society? then the, I haven't I'll, talked about this I've, very much yet.
1: Yeah, I've gotten feedback from people at Northwestern Law School, which is very positive and very enthusiastic, and that's what I would expect. But I'm sure I'll hear about I'm sure I'll get feedback uh at the National Lawyers Convention of a negative sort about the brief. And I have an op ed of my own explaining my own particular take on the case and um, uh, why I feel the way that I do about the case. And I think that my position is the true conservative position and uh, that the ISL position is not. Uh, I would rather trust 50 state Supreme Courts than one national Supreme Court. One national Supreme Court can be much more easily corrupted than 50 state Supreme Courts can be one of the advantages of the electoral college is that we count the vote 50 in 50 States with 50 secretaries of state counting each state. If there was a national voting commissioner, someone like Donald Donald Trump or might corrupt that national voting commissioner. So I actually think federalism in picking the president is very, very important.
0: And we have talked about that on this podcast. I mean, uh, uh, I mean neither, neither Akil nor I were huge fans of the Electoral College. But um well, I'm, we I did have, but it I, did occur I, we were kind of grateful for, for for it in some ways in uh in two thousand twenty when the yeah. for just the very reason that you just articulated that we're thinking, Okay, you know, these local federal these local state officials, that, you know, Raffensburger comes to mind, but there are many others and frankly, not even statewide officials, but just your neighbors that yeah. are you know, that that are counting the votes in, in the precincts and that have to look you in the eye, you know, at the uh, yeah. at the coffee shop next week. Um, exactly. And there is something to be said for that as opposed to, you know, one per one federal czar that could be influenced by the president. and One know, ring
2: to rule them all, one ring to bind them, <laughs> one ring to bring together and in the you know, darkness bind them, yes. Yeah, I mean,
0: I'm not a fan of the Electoral College otherwise, but there is something to be said for that. So, okay, so that so it sounds like you've, to sum up on the Federalist Society then, you've described it as some kind of cross between, um, you know, a, a networking organization and a think tank.
1: Um, well, it, its purpose is to be a think tank, but I would be naive to deny that it's a networking organization because it has in practice become that. I mean, I can't tell you how many people – have gotten married because they met each other at federal society <laughs> events. If that's not networking, I don't know what is. And, you know, lots of people I'm sure have gotten hired for jobs because of people who they met at federal society events. But our goal is not to get people married or to get them jobs. Our goal is to hold interesting events and bring people on the right together so that they feel that. It, they have a place where they can hear conservative and libertarian arguments taken seriously
0: you know i'm i uh, i think we're all a little concerned about uh, echo chambers and you know and and the people not hearing each other's points of view and you've expressed you know a real uh concern for for Trying to do something about that from
1: for your yes. for your whole career. It's one um, of my main reasons for coming to Yale Law School is I want to, not only co-teaching with the Keel, which is a tremendous amount of fun, and not only having really bright students, but every Monday at noon they have their Yale has its internal faculty workshop series, and I go to those workshops and I hear what Yale professors are writing about and what they're thinking and what kind of questions they're asking. And I have lunches and dinners and coffees with them. I'm one of the few people in the country who has had dinner with both Linda Greenhouse and Leonard Leo within the last two years. Uh you put them together, like I'll be
0: more impressed.
1: I, well, that would be a hard <laughs> act to pull off. but uh, but, I, but I like that. I want to hear from both sides. But actually that,
0: that goes to something that I was going to say. Well, you know, earlier I asked you about the audience and you said, no, it's mostly a conservative audience. Um, and, I th- and also you're uh, bemoaning, and not just you're not alone in this at all, you know, the dearth of conservative voices on, the, on certain faculties. So I think, you know, one, if, you wa- if we want to do something about these things as, as, a, as a nation, we really need to bring the best... Um, of the conservative uh, discussion, together with the best of the liberal discussion, I mean, the Federalist Society should be meeting with the ACS or something like that, um, having some kind
1: of joint meetings and yeah. you know cross networking. Absolutely, and we have tried to do that, and when, you know, we have tried all of our Federalist chapters have tried to co sponsor with ACS chapters, and the ACS has a national policy of refusing to allow its chapters to co-sponsor debates with Federalist chapters. And so we can't do it. And the ACS chapter at Yale this year wanted very badly to co-sponsor a Constitution Day debate with the Federalist chapter, and the National Board of the ACS said no. They should have just gone Hadn't done it anyway. Well, what are they going to do, throw them out? Yeah, well, that's, increasingly what we're doing is we're importing liberal speakers as well as conservative speakers so that we can provide the debate. It's a measure, I, I think it's a measure of how much the ACS fears us that they won't engage in debate with us. I think they feel like they, by debating us, they either they'll lose the debate or they'll somehow legitimize us further. Or I, I don't know what their thinking is. but yeah, that ship has uh. has sailed, but, I think. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, our original plan, as usual, to uh, to get to the brief uh, twenty minutes in, uh, because we have so much so much interesting stuff, and boy, did we hear some great stories from Steve today. So uh, we didn't get into the meat of the brief, but of course, the oral argument is until December. And this is a great excuse to uh, drag Steve back on the podcast. Thrilled to come, thrilled to you. come. It's great to meet you, Andrew. Likewise, A real pleasure. And I and I promise pleasure. our audience we're going to get into the the meat of it again with Steve. You heard Keel's take on the brief when we and uh, when we actually read it to you over the last uh, couple of weeks. We're not going to ask Steve to read it to us. I guarantee you. Um, okay. But he will uh, he will give us his particular take, and it'd be interesting to see if there's a little uh, space between. Is and and Achilles. Um, so back with more, and you'll get a even greater clarity on uh, on right. the argument from Steve. And, and we
2: also heard you write some amazing stories. And, and of course, um, if Steve's in my brief succeeds, and and Vic's, of course, it's going to succeed by persuading some of the people, some of the Fed sock affiliates on the Supreme Court because yeah. it's got to persuade some of them.
0: So, Steve will return to our podcast for more stories and to address the brief, as we've been promising. The oral argument in Moore versus Harper, the ISL case, is December 7th, so we'll have Steve back on before that. Next week, we hope to give you our also-promised take on the affirmative action uh, oral arguments, um, which were, to say the least, uh, quite lengthy. So be sure to tune in for that. And again, thanks to Steve Calabresi for his color and candor. And we'll be back, as always, next week.